Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. We traveled to 1875 when the giant of the American political scene, two-term President Ulysses Grant, chose not to seek a third term. The resulting contest between Democrat Samuel Tilden and Republican Rutherford B. Hayes was a referendum on the biggest issue facing the country then, which was what to do with Reconstruction ten years after the Civil War. Between Election Day in November and Inauguration Day in January, the presidential election ground to a halt. The Democrat, Samuel Tilden, clinched the support of 184 electoral votes, and he needed only one more to win. But three southern states certified dueling sets of electors. If those states' votes all went to Tilden's opponent, Republican Rutherford Hayes, then Hayes would win by a total of 185 and assume the office of president. The laws passed by Congress to resolve that photo finish in 1876 are still in place today, and both sides are actively citing them as the 2020 election process comes to a close. This episode of Coal Mind looks at how the spirit of 1876 is very much alive and well in our national political dialogue today. 1876. Will Ulysses Grant seek a third term as president? He decides not to seek office, in part because he is simply tired. Two terms as the president will exhaust anyone, and of course before that he had an arduous task as the leader of the Union Army during the Civil War. Additionally, the press in the last year or so of his administration has targeted high-level officials in his administration uh, with investigations of corruption. They have not gone well for those officials, and while the president himself is not implicated, there is serious discussion as to whether he's been minding the store and keeping an eye on those around him. He decides in his famous quote on the subject, I never wanted to get out of a place as much as I did to get out of the presidency. So with Ulysses Grant stepping aside, that opens the way for other candidates to now seek the office of president. The Republicans turn, after a primary season, to replace Ulysses Grant, they turn to Rutherford B. Hayes from Ohio, who has recently served as the governor of that state. The Democrats turn to Samuel J. Tilden, a successful lawyer and politician in New York City, most famous in that city for prosecuting Boss Tweed, a politician of some note earlier in the century who was also noted for his corruption. There is no serious question that both Hayes and Tilden are decent men driven by principle. They have careers in public service and they are respected, but they are neither of them particularly charismatic. Rutherford Hayes is described in one article of the day as a third-rate non-entity whose only recommendations are that he is obnoxious to no one, and some of the press describing Samuel Tilden, for example, described him as a very nice, prim, little, withered-up, fidgety old bachelor. So, in part, neither of the men was that charismatic, and those are fair observations. In part, they simply are in the shadow of the giants that have come before them in the White House, Ulysses Grant, finishing his two terms and, of course, Abraham Lincoln uh, before him, another larger-than-life figure. A popular political cartoon of the time shows a sketch of Tilden, a sketch of Hayes, and beneath it the caption, Of the two evils, choose the least. So that's the national mood, at least as to the personalities involved heading into the 1876 election. But even if the two candidates are a little on the bland side, the underlying issue, the central policy question that the country faces in this election is anything but boring, and it is, what is going to be done with Reconstruction? The Civil War is 10 years in the history books. The Reconstruction Acts have been on the books for several years, and 
by this point in time, there is substantial discontent. The South, of course, was never fond of Reconstruction. They have grown no fonder of it after several years of strong military presence in their states, affecting how their governments are conducted in those states. In the North, there are those who believe that there is more work to be done, and perhaps the solution is to refocus or to spend even more resources and fill in some of the gaps in the process to that point. But for every person who thinks that, there's someone not unlike a critic of the Vietnam War in our time who would say, we've been spending a lot of time and resources on this and not getting a lot to show for it. Are we really going to spend another 10 years with the Army occupying the southern half of the country? So the debate about what to do with Reconstruction and whether to proceed with it at all is of vital importance to the nation, and it sort of hangs up other policy questions at the time until a decision can be made about what will be done in this particular issue. The election proceeds, and it is fair to say that Samuel Tilden runs off with the popular vote. The Democratic Party, which is the party opposing Reconstruction, wanting to see an end to it, runs very well in the West, in California. It runs well throughout the South, and it runs well up into the East Coast. The Republican Party then picks up, and it tends to do well in the big east cities of the eastern seaboard and along the Great Lakes, sort of the exact opposite of how the Democrat and Republican parties run today. As the end of election day, Rutherford Hayes goes to bed thinking he has lost the election. Of course, then as now, the popular vote, while important, is not what decides the election. It is the Electoral College. Tilden can account for 184 electoral votes. Hayes has 166. But others around Hayes who stay up later and are paying careful heed to what's going on in the country observe that the three states outstanding, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, can make the difference. If Hayes wins in those three states, Florida with four votes, Louisiana with eight, and South Carolina with seven, he will have 185 electoral votes to Tilden's 184. And all three states, of course, are in the South, and they have Republican governors as part of the Reconstruction program. The national spotlight swings to those three states, and it is fair to say that chaos ensues. Both Florida and Louisiana ultimately certify dueling slates of electors as a result of the popular election within their state. In Florida and Louisiana, the Republican Reconstruction governors certify Republican electors. Other parts of the government, led by Democrats in those states, in Florida, the Attorney General, in Louisiana, the Democratic candidate for governor, certify that the Democrats won the election and certify Democratic slates of electors. That's those two states. South Carolina becomes so contentious over the issue that they essentially end up with two state governments. The Republicans and Democrats can't abide being in the same state house. The Democrats move down the street and set up their own alternative government in a hotel, and they simply have dueling governments for a while after that. There's a serious question of social order in that state. The books record that there was a 101% voter turnout in South Carolina for this election, so certainly the people of South Carolina felt strongly about it. There are obvious questions as to whether the records were accurately kept as to who voted for who. And of all places, Oregon, not in the South, entered the scene. There is a constitutional prohibition against an officer of the U.S. government serving as an elector, and of all things, one of the electors from Oregon turned out there was a dispute about that, and there was a question as to whether he was valid and there were dueling certifications as to him. The situation is not pretty. What would otherwise be sort of a curiosity as to whether or not one state has voted one way or another has become outcome determinative just by dumb luck of where these states are located and the size of their population. All eyes then turn to Congress because the Constitution makes clear that once states finish their votes, they complete their list of electors, they submit those to the Senate, and the Senate is then supposed to take action. Senate looks to the 12th Amendment of the Constitution to see what its duties are. And it finds it most unhelpful. The key language says as follows. 
The President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates, and the votes shall then be counted. Certainly, a good idea. It limits it to the Senate. It limits it to certain action they are to take. So far, so good. But how exactly they're supposed to go about counting when it's not clear what they should be counting is not answered by this provision of the Constitution. And it is, of course, as a practical matter, extremely difficult to make up rules about this on the fly. The resulting situation is not pretty. There is no easy resolution in the Senate. There is no easy resolution in Congress. And there are mounting cries for unrest throughout the country. In the South, there is a saying, Tilden or blood. Ulysses Grant, old military man, goes so far as to quietly begin moving military units around Washington to defend it in the event of civil unrest. And faced with the rising discontent around the country and the need to do something by the time President Grant's term formally expires under the Constitution, on the surface, Congress agrees to the appointment of a bipartisan commission, which will review the conflicting vote totals and make a decision. That is really more of an outside, looking-in description of what they are doing. What they actually do is reach a deal called the Compromise of 1877. And in this compromise, the Democrats agree they will yield the floor and let Rutherford Hayes claim the White House, but on the condition that Rutherford Hayes not oppose legislation that will bring an end to Reconstruction. And that is exactly what happens. Hayes takes the White House, Tilden goes back to New York, and within a matter of months, Congress proposes legislation that brings Reconstruction to an end, and that legislation is signed. So far, so good. We faced a serious crisis as a result of an uncovered point in our constitutional provision for conducting a presidential election. Cooler heads prevailed over some hotheads in 1876. A compromise was reached and the nation went on. Congress then, a few years later, once the smoke had cleared and people had settled down, turned back to the election laws and said, let's think about how we can fix this and not have this problem again in the future. Here, a brief aside, it's worth remembering the example of André Maginot, the Minister of Defense in France in the late 1920s, early 1930s. His name graced the elaborate set of fortifications that France built between itself and Germany after World War I. When World War II broke out, the German forces simply went around them, and it became clear that Mr. Maginot's line addressed the wrong war. He was fighting the past war based on trenches and fortifications in the earth, not the current war based on airplanes and tanks. And we have a touch of that in what Congress did here. Congress set out to solve the specific problem they had just lived through. Of course, they do not have perfect foresight and could not see into the future as to what crises may come up. And this little dash of the Maginot problem explains some of the ambiguities that we now see in our present-day discussion about the 2020 election. The background, what are the legal rules that guide what Congress can and cannot do? They looked at the Constitution, Article 2, which has two key and somewhat inconsistent provisions. The first is a broad grant of power to the states. Article 2 says, Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. So we know that the process of selecting electors is something given by the Constitution to the legislatures of the several states. Congress, on the other hand, has certain powers as well. Same article of the Constitution, Article 2, says... The Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. So we know from Article 2 that the state legislatures decide who and how, and Congress has the power to say when as a matter of coordinating the activity among the several states. 
Incidentally, Congress had used this power back in the 1840s to establish a national election day. Part of the reason for that was the invention of the telegraph. Before that time, you could sort of play out elections over several days because word of who won a state would not travel quickly from one state to the other. The invention of the telegraph allowed instantaneous communication, and if you had one state finishing their election a couple of days before the other, you would start to have elections reinforcing one another and influencing each other. So Mr. Morse's invention led to a national election day being put in place in the 1840s, and that date has, in fact, never moved since then. It continues to be the first Tuesday after Monday in November. Within those guidelines, Congress looked at the Tilden Hayes situation, looked at its power, and came up with 3 United States Code Section 5, titled Determination of Controversy as to Appointment of Electors, and has two key features. If a state has laws that were enacted before the election day, and it goes through its process for deciding who is an elector, resolving any challenges to the election process and qualifications of electors and so on and so forth, at least six days before the date when electors must meet, that process of determining who exactly the electors are is conclusive. The discussion is over, and the number that has been formally certified by the state binds Congress when it sits down and counts the votes in early January. This is called the safe harbor provision, and it was designed to avoid the Tilden Hayes problem of people after the election coming up with different slates of electors, coming up with attempts to change the rules, and so on and so forth. The safe harbor provision never got a lot of airplay or litigation until the year 2000 in Bush versus Gore, the photo finish election in the state of Florida. Part of the issue in what went to the Supreme Court in Bush versus Gore was the argument that the recount, the last recount that had been ordered by the Florida Supreme Court, would cause the process to spill past the safe harbor date, contrary to the intent of the legislators in that state, and potentially lead to continuation of the drama and proceedings about that election well into January and require the involvement of Congress. The Supreme Court ruled the day before the safe harbor. It ruled in such a way that the recount did not proceed, and thus Florida's certification made the safe harbor. It was conclusive, and that was the end of the Bush versus Gore dispute. This date was what drove the fast tempo of that litigation, and it was a key part of the Supreme Court's thinking about how it needed to resolve that case. And this statute and the concept of the safe harbor certification has gotten a lot of attention in recent weeks. There have been claims of misconduct in various key states. There's been a lot of litigation about it. The president has generally lost it. But a common theme in those cases is a questioning the certification or seeking the remedy of decertifying election results. And all of that is driven by the safe harbor, because once the safe harbor comes and goes, there is a powerful argument that these cases just sort of become irrelevant. By operation of law, the process is done. There's some room to argue about that, but that's what has driven the fast pace of those cases and has driven this focus on the word certification. Congress looked at its powers, determined that it had the ability to regulate timing, drafted a rule about timing that using that concept with a six-day safe harbor period that added to the existing timeline for having an election that would probably have solved the Tilden Hayes problem and will likely keep it from occurring in the future. Clever solution. But while they were at it in the election code, they, Congress did not revise another provision of the election code. 3 U.S.C. 1 sets the election day. 3 U.S.C. 2, which had been on the books for some time before these revisions in the 1880s and continues to be on the books, is entitled Failure to Make Choice on Prescribed Day. Key sentence in it reads as follows. 
whenever any state has held an election for the purpose of choosing electors and has failed to make a choice on the day prescribed by law, the electors may be appointed on a subsequent day in such a manner as the legislature of such state may direct. That doesn't have a safe harbor date in it, and it uses the word failed, which is a word that can be read in different ways. The legislative history at the time is an example from a congressman from Virginia in 1844. He expresses concern on the record about times of high water and inclement weather in which, in his state of Virginia, voters were frequently prevented from attending the polls in one day. And there are other congressmen who spoke during that period about failure in the sense of a physical failure to have an election. Present question, though, is whether an alleged pervasive fraud in the election process can be seen as a failure of the process. And that has driven some lobbying by some of the president's lawyers, the state legislators, to try to ask them to intervene in the process after the safe harbor date and make a certification of electors based upon a conclusion that fraud occurred in the election process. So far, that has had no success and no traction. There is a very serious due process issue with those requests because having conducted an election under one set of rules, it does seem odd for a legislature to then come in and change the rules in such a way as to change the outcome of the election. But it's an argument that is grounded in the language of this statute, and it is grounded in a constitutional grant of power to state legislatures that is, in fact, unusually broad. While the Congress solved one problem with the so-called safe harbor provision, by not changing the other provision, there is still the potential for some confusion because these two statutes can interact in ways that are not entirely consistent. Most of the legacy of the election of 1876, though, is good news. The crisis was averted. The country moved on. Thoughtful laws were passed in good faith to try to avoid having another such crisis. And, in fact, we have avoided such a crisis since then. Bush versus Gore was extremely close, but the safe harbor kicked in. And with a lot of judicial scrutiny, that election was brought to an end, and we moved on from there as well. The 2020 election appears to be nearing its conclusion with the certification process now largely complete and the remainder of the dates on the calendar being largely ceremonial about formally collecting the votes and sending them to Congress. To the extent there is still litigation activity or lobbying activity, this discussion of the legacy of 1876 illuminates the parts of the statutes and constitution that could come into play and the kinds of arguments that we may yet still hear over the next several weeks until the conclusion of that process. Reconstruction is long over, and Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilden are better known from Trivial Pursuit and Jeopardy than from the history books. But the legacy of their close election lives on today in the laws passed by Congress to resolve that election. While those laws would prevent another Hayes-Tilden type of crisis from arising today, they are not perfect, and the ambiguities in those laws continue to be debated in the world of 2020 as this most recent presidential election draws to a close. This unusually long episode of Coal Mine was inspired by Stefan Bouchard and Amisha Mehta of Debate Alumni New York City, who recently invited me to speak at a fundraising event for the New York City Urban Debate League. I developed this episode for that presentation, and I appreciate their support and their encouragement. For upcoming episodes, it will continue to be a close call between COVID cases and disputes about election law, and I'll just have to follow the lead of the headlines and make some game-time decisions about the best topics. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories. If you enjoy listening to it, I encourage you to leave a good review on Apple Podcasts when you have a chance. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.